Welcome to HD Reality with Courtney Cable. As a member of a Huntington's disease family and a certified life coach, I'm here to help you navigate the unique challenges of Huntington's disease. This podcast is dedicated to everyone affected by HD, including individuals with HD, their loved ones, and their care partners. Together, we'll explore practical mental and emotional tools to help you overcome the obstacles that arise with this diagnosis. Join me as we define our own HD reality. Keep listening and let the transformation begin. Hello, hello. I am so excited for this episode today. I got to interview the founders of Empowering Care Partners, and I just love what they do. I love what they stand for. They're fabulous people. I really enjoyed talking with them. So I'm sorry this episode is a little bit long. I just couldn't cut anything out. It was good. So enjoy. All right. Thank you guys so much for joining me. I have Emily and Laurie here from Empowering Care Partners, and I am just going to let them introduce themselves and tell us a little bit about who they are and what they do. Okay, thanks so much. And we are so honored to be here and so thankful that you asked us to join. And so my name is Laurie Walther and I am a speech language pathologist, speech therapist. I live in McKinney, Texas. I started my career in Florida where I was born and raised and I got my undergraduate degree from the University of Florida in communication sciences and disorders. And in the same program, but this time at Florida Atlantic University where I received my master's. I've worked as a speech therapist, primarily with geriatrics for 26 years. I've worked in many settings, primarily skilled nursing and memory care, but also assisted living, hospital, which is acute rehab, inpatient rehab, outpatient and home health. Currently, I'm treating patients in some of those settings that I just mentioned, supporting SLP graduate students with clinical trainings at a university, writing CEUs, which are continuing education for professionals, primarily with focus on dementia. Currently, my business partner, Emily and myself, we started our company, as you said, the name of it, Empowering Care Partners. We provide dementia training and support to persons living with dementia, their care partners, and to communities and organizations who provide support to persons living with dementia. We are certified dementia trainers through TIPA Snow's positive approach to care. So Emily, I'll hand it off to you. As Lori mentioned, I'm an occupational therapist. I've been an occupational therapist for a little over 20 years. I'm in the Dallas, Texas area. Actually got my degree just outside of Dallas at Texas Women's University. And I have spent most of my career working in skilled nursing facilities. So worked in a number of different settings, but always working with older adults. And really, I love working with this population, and I've fallen in love with working with those who are living with dementia. I first encountered Tipa Snow a number of years ago and really fell in love with her approach and am very excited to use it and to train others on it. So again, thank you, Courtney, for having us. Can you tell us a little bit more about what's unique about Tipa Snow's approach? Sure. Tipa Snow is an occupational therapist. She has, I think, a little over 30 years of experience as an OT, worked in a number of different settings. And what I like about her approach and what really struck me when I first heard her speak back around 2009-2010 was her efforts to involve the person who's living with dementia in the care process. So many times when 
we think about someone who's living with a chronic disease like dementia, our minds automatically go to that end state. And there's so much more that happens before we get there. And it's crucial that we involve the person who's experiencing it because truly they're the expert in the disease process. We need to involve them in their care management. And the things that she introduced that would include them and really respected them as people really stood out to me. So that's part of why we decided to get trained in her positive approach to care. That's amazing. Lori, if you want to tell me a little bit about what made you want to transition out of the career path that you've been on into launching this business. Yes, absolutely. Thanks for asking that question. You know, Emily and I worked together for about seven years and we had the same passions and the same ideas. And we saw that there was a gap. There's a gap in being able to provide care and being able to provide care the right way to persons living with dementia. And that's by their care partners and by the folks who take care of them on a daily basis. And so given that we saw that gap, that was one reason that we decided to become dementia trainers. And that way we could help to support, you know, as therapists, one of the things that we always talk about is being able to educate and train the patient and resident that we serve and also the care partners. So given our passions, our passions for geriatrics and the older adult, giving our passions for patients and residents that we serve, giving our passions for Emily as an occupational therapist and supporting those activities of daily living, the things that you do for grooming, hygiene, bathing, feeding, dressing, toileting, and as a speech language pathologist, focusing on that cognition, communication, and swallowing. We took all those passions together, and that's why we decided to move away from the corporate industry that we were in to be able to provide that support and those gaps in care directly to persons living with dementia, their care partners, and organizations and communities that serve persons living with dementia. I love that goal. It's so beautiful. And you mentioned with speech language pathology, helping with swallowing. And I know for the Huntington's disease community, that can be a major concern. Can you tell a little bit about what a speech language pathologist can do for the swallowing aspect? Yeah, absolutely. There's a lot of different things that speech language pathologists can do. The major thing first that we need to do is we need to establish what the individual is safest for. So one of the things that we do is we'll take a look at the oral musculature. So when you talk about oral muscles, you're talking about the lips, you're talking about the cheek muscles, you're talking about the tongue. We also look at what's called the pharynx, the throat area. Really your swallow takes about 50 pairs of muscles and we swallow about 800 to 1000 times a day. It's just something we do all the time and we don't think about it until something happens that makes us think about it. So we'll take a look at the muscles. We'll look at the strength, what we call the range of motion, the movement and the coordination. And then we'll take a look at how the person manages food and liquid, how they manage it in their mouth, how they manage it in their throat. And even if we notice anything with the esophagus, which is the food pipe that leads down to the stomach from the throat into the stomach. So, and we can also make recommendations for safest diet. We can also work potentially on strengthening of the muscles and strategies, compensatory strategies for safety. It's hard to really gauge and talk about all the different strategies and maneuvers that we might do because it's based on the individual person 
and the symptoms and deficits that we're seeing. Gotcha. And what about you, Emily? What does an occupational therapist do for those activities of daily living and all of the struggles that can come with Huntington's? Great question, Courtney. You know, as an occupational therapist, I like to take kind of a three-pronged approach into how I look at really any patient and what they're able to do and what they need to be able to do. So I want to look at the patient themselves, what they're able to do, and can I improve things like strength, like mobility, like coordination to help them improve their function. If I can't, then maybe I can work on some compensatory strategies. We can change things. Even if I can't improve the patient, I might be able to change some environmental supports that they have, whether it's equipment or the way furniture is placed that they can hold on to it to help balance while walking. Or I can change the task itself. So if it's something that they're having difficulty with, say it's tremors while they're eating and keeping food on a spoon, it tends to fall off. So do we need to look at using a fork? Or there's some adaptive equipment pieces that maybe we can use that will help with steadying those tremors. So I wanna take that three-pronged approach to looking at the tasks that are important to that particular patient. What is it that, is important to them. What would they like to be able to do? Where are they currently having difficulties? And what are the things that they need to be able to do in order to be successful? And I take all those pieces into account. And one of the things that we have to keep in mind with Huntington's, very similar to those who are diagnosed with dementia, is it is progressive. Things are going to change over time. So what works today may not work six months or a year down the road. So it's something that we would want to make a very cognizant plan to revisit every so often and make sure that those systems that we have in place to support that person still work. And if they don't, what do we need to change? Do we need to change the environment, the equipment, the task that we're having them to do to simplify things and keep them as independent as possible for as long as possible? I love that. Both of you mentioned strategies to impact kind of the physical actions with the swallowing and the tremors and all those things. How do you see your work with dementia and the way memory care and cognition affects HD coming into play when you're working with these physical actions? You have to figure out what works for each individual. So you have to figure out maybe, for example, does heightened awareness help? Maybe does having visual aids help? Um, maybe needing to use repetition and then they're able to carry it over by continuing to practice it and carry it out. Yeah, it sounds like a really unique challenge where you're needing to work with the physicality and teaching these things, but at the same time, keeping in mind that the cognitive aspect and the memory are kind of getting in the way sometimes. Were you going to say something, Emily? I was just going to expand on what Lori was talking about. There are some times that we can, you know, work on those habits and routines. And even when memory is starting to fail, you can still create new habits and routines. It just may take a little bit longer. There's a sort of a rule of thumb that it takes 21 days to establish a new habit or routine with someone who's living with Huntington's disease or with dementia it may take a bit longer, but it can still be done. The other benefit, particularly from an occupational therapy standpoint, is that so many of the things that we do during our normal daily lives are such old habits and routines that they're really ingrained in the brain. So think about a task such as brushing your teeth. 
you've been brushing your teeth or at least helping to brush your teeth since you were probably about two or three, right? You don't even have to think about it anymore. You reach for the toothbrush, you reach for the toothpaste, you squeeze it on there and you start brushing. So as an occupational therapist, I can really capitalize on that. We call it procedural memory. So it's that memory of a procedure and it's linked to a location. It's linked to certain devices. So if I take a person who's living with dementia and I take them into the bathroom and I hand them a toothbrush, they may not be able to tell me that's a toothbrush. They may not be able to tell me what you do with it, but many of them will automatically bring it to their mouth and start that motion of brushing their teeth. They just kind of know. Same sort of thing. You hand them a fork, they may automatically start to bring it to their mouth. So we can utilize some of that procedural memory, even once the ability to tell me whether or not you had lunch two hours ago is gone. And, and I'll add, that's where it can get a little bit tricky. For example, it's super unfortunate in today's day and world and the nature of what we do. We literally will joke about it sometimes, but it's true. You have five minutes to shove food down your face while you're running, doing 20 different things. However, those habits that we have picked up along the way, for example, when you start to have swallowing problems, now you have this speech therapist coming in saying, well, wait a second, you're eating way too fast. You're taking way too big of bites and that's not so safe. So then you really are trying to, to change some of those habits that we've unfortunately picked up along the way and are almost retraining and teaching how to do that. So it's through that practice over time. And like Emily said, creating those new learning, unfortunately, it might take us 21 days to practice it consistently to be able to then carry out that strategy effectively. So interesting. So you both have worked for a number of years directly hands-on with different patients, and I would love to hear any of your stories or experiences or interactions with the HD community or with patients or family members with Huntington's, whatever you'd like to share. Yeah, I can go first. And, and the first thing I want to talk about is really just as a whole. For me, obviously, we, we often say the most important thing about working with a patient is finding out that personhood, right? You want to find out what makes them tick. What are their likes and dislikes? And then also we know if we've seen one person with dementia, we've only seen one person with dementia. So we've seen one person with Huntington's. You've truly seen one person with Huntington's. For me, some of the major focuses that I tend to gear myself towards when I work with someone with Huntington's is that cognitive aspect, the swallow aspect, uh, the communication, Communication is something, again, that we take for granted on a daily basis because it's just something that we do. And when we talk about communication, we talk about expression, which is someone's ability to verbally express themselves or to write. So written expression, we talk about comprehension, and that's the ability to process and understand what people are saying to us, and also reading comprehension. But then also another aspect of communication is speech. So how clear is someone's speech? Do they have the appropriate breast supply to be able to communicate what they want out there? Is their speech clear and intelligible? So those are all the things, again, you want to take into account about the person, but then about their abilities as a whole. From a speech perspective as well, the swallowing, the eating component that goes hand in hand with occupational therapy. And I know a lot of times the other component is because of the extraneous movements, individuals are constantly using calories. 
So you're trying to take in calories, which is sometimes difficult, especially in those later stages from a swallowing perspective, but you're expending calories because of the movement. And I know one time something that we did was we gave someone because they were, had a lot of extraneous movements so much so that they were moving around in their chair a lot. And it was in an unsafe manner that obviously they couldn't control. And so we used a fisherman's vest and we put some weights in there. And that definitely helped that individual and made him feel more confident and made him feel more comfortable being able to sit in the chair effectively. Yeah. Along the same lines of what Lori was talking about, having spent a good portion of my career in skilled nursing facilities, most of the patients I saw who had Huntington's disease were nearing the end stages of the process. So positioning was a big concern. And for me, I think one of the biggest things and why we say in the healthcare field that we practice medicine is because we're constantly learning new things. So if I think back to the beginning of my career and some of the things that we did to, in the name of trying to keep people safe, you know, they, they used to have these tent type things that they would put over beds because of the choreatic movements and people would as they're moving, fling themselves practically out of bed. And thank goodness those days are gone. We don't use those anymore that I've seen. And we've moved on to some other techniques. You know, we have large beanbag chairs where they can move all they need to and still have that cocoon around them. Or maybe it's bringing the bed closer to the floor. There are things that we can look at to help keep them well positioned and safe. Lori mentioned the you know, burning more calories than they're able to take in because of the choreatic movements and the difficulty with eating and swallowing. So that can lead to some issues with potential wound development if they're not positioned correctly and don't have any padding over, you know, bones and joints. And so making sure that, you know, we have that padding, we can add that padding via clothing, via skin protectors to help keep them as comfortable as we possibly can. So that's a lot of what my experience has been in working directly with people who have Huntington's disease. Yeah. What about their families? Have you had much interaction with the families or care partners? And what have you noticed about them? Let me tell you, those who have a loved one with Huntington's disease or a family friend, y'all are all angels in disguise because it is a, it's a tough road. Just like having a loved one living with dementia, it's hard to watch. And particularly if you knew the person prior to their diagnosis, to see that progression and to see the change, that's difficult. And I've seen families who cannot handle it. They've, you know, for their own mental health and well-being or, you know, for other reasons are not able to, not able to be as present. And then I've seen those who are, and the dedication is incredible. It, the support, the caring, and really, you know, it boils down to the love for that person and their ability to look past their own discomfort and focus on what their loved one needs. Yeah, I agree a thousand percent, you know, having someone who has a progressive disease and being able to put them above yourself and being able to understand the direction of the process and being able to put your love into that every being every single day is critically important 
not just for yourself as the care partner, but also for the person that you're supporting. And it's pretty amazing to be able to see folks do that day in and day out. You know, one of the things that we always talk about, and I know Courtney, you've talked about it on your podcast too, is making sure that you take care of you at the same time. And so we, we too want to stress that it's so important to make sure that you take care of yourself as well. Yeah, I think that's so important. So many of us think that if we take care of ourselves, then we're taking away from what we could be giving our loved one. But in the end, it's an investment and you can give them so much more because your cup is full. Exactly. Yeah, you've got to recharge your batteries. And you you cannot pour from an empty cup. Yes, exactly. You both were interacting directly with patients, but I'm wondering if you ever found yourself in situations where you needed to give the family members additional support or education or comfort? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, everything that we do as clinicians should always be about the patient and resident that you're serving, but it should also be with the care partner, families, and we should always be providing education about the current status. And it should be a two-way street. Again, the individual who has Huntington's or dementia or whatever the case may be, they are that expert through their own lived experience just like the care partner is that expert through the lived experience and both the individual that has Huntington's or dementia and their families should be part of the communication and the plan from day one. And then, you know, we're always available throughout the process. And even sometimes when individuals are able to go home, if let's say they're, for example, they're there for rehab and they're going home, they always know that we're out there to add that additional support if they need. I also wanted to ask how you've seen the physical symptoms impact the emotional symptoms and vice versa, because I know they can kind of feed off each other. And this can be in your experience with HD patients or other patients as well, because I know it plays a big part in Parkinson's and other movement disorders. The psychological impact of any chronic condition, whether it's dementia or Parkinson's, Huntington's disease, multiple sclerosis, ALS, you know, you name it can be huge and i have seen everything from complete denial to anger to acceptance starts to sound like the grief process and it is i think it absolutely is it is a grief process getting a diagnosis that is progressive and is terminal does start that grief process and like you mentioned in your podcast courtney it's not a linear process it's circular, but more than just circular, it kind of ping pongs around, you know, if you think about the steps of the grief process being in a circle, you're going to bounce between them in no particular order, sometimes multiple times a day, even an hour. And so recognizing that, respecting that process, as you mentioned, allowing yourself to feel those feelings in the moment can really help as you progress forward towards accepting the diagnosis, accepting your loved one for who they are and where they are right now. But these are progressive diagnoses. So again, that grief process may start itself all over Each little progression when there's a big change or even when there's a little change. And as a therapist, as I'm working with my patients or as I'm interacting with their loved ones, I need to be aware of 
that grief process, I need to be compassionate about where they might be in any given moment. It's something that I've really worked towards as a professional to allow space for someone to feel the emotions that they're feeling and not to feel embarrassed or ashamed of how they feel, but then to help them move forward. Yeah, definitely. Lori, I'm wondering if you could tell us about any common mistakes you see in family members when they're trying to deal with their loved one's memory care or any other progression of the illness. A lot of times people say, oh, well, they're having a behavior. Oh, well, they're having a behavior. Well, to us, it's not so much a behavior. A lot of times it's an unmet need. Why is there a perceived behavior? And what can we do about it? I'm so glad you brought that up. Yeah. That was one of my favorite yeah. posts that you guys had about when speech and our ability to express those needs gets impacted. Sometimes these behaviors become our way of communicating. And just recognizing that as care partners, I think, I, I thought that was amazing. Yeah, and I mean, really, you don't even have to have a progressive disease to say that. You can think about a baby and why, you know, do babies have trouble? Why are two-year-olds, you terrible twos? Why do we have the terrible twos? Is a behavior behavior. It's an unmet need. And so it we could use this in our everyday lives as to why someone has a perceived behavior. We have to figure out what what is missing. What is the need? The other thing, you know, that I'd love to share way before memory care is to make sure number one, that we all know what someone's baseline is. That way we know when there is a change. So again, we can put on that detective hat and try to figure out where the change is, but also making sure that the individual with Huntington's or dementia, when they're able to make decisions about their care and their future care. So what is it? What are their desires? What are their wishes? There's a great poem out there and it's called, what if I get dementia? And it's by Rachel Wonderland. And it has about 16 talking points. Again, that's not going to help you to come up with everything that you want for your future. Um, and the potential of what happens with the disease process, but it's a great conversation starter. But that's what it comes down to is, again, making sure that decisions are made when people can make those decisions about what they want for their future and making sure that their needs get met. I love that. I'll definitely post a link to that poem because I have seen it and I love it so much. What about you, Emily? Have there, what have you seen as far as mistakes you see care partners and loved ones doing when they're dealing with their loved one who has dementia or HD or any other illness related to that? Sure. So I think it goes back to the differentiation between caregiver and care partner. And this is something that Tipa Snow likes to point out in her training. And Lori and I really love and why we named our company Empowering Care Partners because the whole goal is to be a partner with the person for whom you're caring. Caregiver sounds like a one-way street. I give, you take. I give, you take. I give, you take. To partner with somebody means I give, you give. So even if the person for whom I'm caring can't give back in the same way that I'm giving to them, they can give something. Even towards the end, they can give something and it's partnering with them and it's getting that permission to 
do the things that need to be done. So one of the techniques that Tipa Snow likes to teach is called hand under hand. So basically you have their hand in yours and together you're getting a task done. That allows that person to communicate back to you in more than just words. You know, I can tell you with words, no, I don't want that. But maybe the person who's living with dementia or the person who's living with Huntington's disease can no longer say no, or I don't want that, or no thank you, or please stop. But they might be able to push your hand away. And if I have their hand in mine, and I'm going to wash their face or brush their teeth or brush their hair, and they start to push my hand away, that's my signal that this action isn't okay right now. I need to stop, and I can try again later when they're ready. It allows that nonverbal communication, and so it allows us to collaborate and work together in a way that I feel like many people don't take the time to see. You know, when you think about the end stages of any of these progressive diseases, you think about a person who's primarily in bed, perhaps curled into a fetal position and not able to do anything for themselves. And so we, with the best of intentions, go in to do for them, right? We mean well. It's not like we're setting out to hurt somebody, but if they don't want it, if they're hurting, if they're uncomfortable, or if they're just tired and don't want to do that right now, we can allow them the freedom to tell us that by involving them in the care and keeping them as evolved as they can be for as long as they can be. I love that so much. I'm wondering what you would say to someone who might be hearing that and thinking, well, that sounds great in theory, but how is that practical? Like, if I really need them to do this thing and they're telling me no, but I need them to say yes, you know, how, how do you see this playing out in a day-to-day -day situation? That can definitely be a challenge. And I do understand that it's one thing to sit here and talk about it. It's a whole nother thing to actually do it. And as an occupational therapist, I believe very strongly in learning by doing or being a kinesthetic learner. And so I would show them and I would invite them in. I would try it. I would have them try it. We're going to work together to figure this out real time. How does your loved one communicate? Can they say no? Are they going to push me away? Do they just clam up and resist? You know, I'm trying to brush their teeth or give them some food and they bite their lips and clamp their jaws shut tight and resist what I'm doing and help them help the care partner to kind of take a slight step back and view the whole picture and see that as not a behavior, like Lori said, but a way of communication. That's how they're telling me, no, I don't want that, not right now. And while we may feel like we well, haven't eaten in six hours, you need to eat something, you need to drink something. When it comes to the end stages of these disease processes, they don't need to eat and drink necessarily as frequently as we might think they do. That's a great time to partner with hospice companies, to partner with all the caregivers and, and really decide what is it that my loved one truly needs right now? And if they're resisting, why are they resisting? 
And why am I pushing for it? Am I pushing for it because I think it's going to help them? Or am I pushing for it because it would make me feel better if they ate something or drank something? So they're tough questions that we have to ask ourselves. But I truly feel that as professionals, the more we can partner with the person who's living with dementia or Huntington's disease or Parkinson's or whatever that diagnosis is, and their care partner to actually do these tasks with them and figure it out in the moment, the more successful everybody will be and the better that care experience is going to be. Wow, thank you. Lori, I'm wondering after the time you spent in this field, if it's had any impact on the way you view life or our memory or relationships, just how has this impacted and changed you as a person? Yes, yeah, so so living through this has helped me as a person. It's helped me to be more patient. It helps it has helped me to be more empathetic. You know, as I'm working with those graduate students, I tell them all the time, empathy is huge. And empathy really is a learned behavior. And so being empathetic is huge. Helping to understand that you have to see things from different people's perspectives is huge because it's not just about my agenda, you know, like Emily just talked about, you know, and you just referred to, we have to get them to eat something. And that's, that's the focus. You've got to get them to eat and drink something. So guess what though? That's my agenda. That's not the person's agenda. So we have to figure out their agenda on their time. It's helped me to understand that personhood and understanding what matters most to that individual. Again, I may have an agenda because I may need to make them as safe as possible with the diet that I think they need to be safe on. But from a dignity perspective and from that person's desires, my job is to educate and what they might be safest on, but my job is also taking into account, are they managing their clinical risk? And let's come up with the diet that they want that they can manage their clinical risk or understand maybe the potential risks of that choice. So it's about maybe not going in with my agenda, but understanding that the individual has their agenda too and working together for the betterment. So those are definitely some of the things that are so critically important and dignity for me is huge dignity and allowing them to be able to be as independent as possible for as long as they can. Absolutely. You've both touched on such an important, crucial aspect of Huntington's disease, which comes in sometimes well before the end stages or what they've technically labeled as the end stages, which is patient autonomy. Like, at what point is somebody else making the medical decisions? At what point is somebody else doing this or that for this person? And I think that's going to be such a fine line for each individual person. So I've loved hearing your guys' thoughts on that. I'd love to hear and have you share with everyone listening just a little bit more about your business and what your offer is, what your goal with the business is, and the educational programs that you have in place. What would you like to see this do for people? So, you know, again, we chose to do this because this is our passion. It's what we love to do. And we like to support on multiple, multiple levels. One of those levels is working with the individual person living with dementia, Huntington's disease, and working with their care partner directly. We also can work with organizations, communities that provide support to persons living with dementia, 
Huntington's disease, and also, for example, doing conferences, maybe for larger groups, so that they can take the information back to their communities. And again, we can continue to provide that extra support. You know, our core values, you know, we're called empowering care partners. And as Emily alluded to, you know, empowering in itself is strength and being able to empower people to do the things that they want to do. We also, the other, another word of course, and there is partners. So it's that partnering aspect. And then care is huge for us. And we talk about how we provide care tips and we use the big, in big letters care because it's a mnemonic for us. And the mnemonic stands for compassion and it stands for that, that indicates the challenges of caregiving because we understand that acceptance uh, is the A and that stands for acceptance of the person living with dementia and where they are in their journey. We know that journey can be fluid and it can change. And then we've also got the progression piece of it as well. The R in care for us stands for reliability and that's on proven skills and techniques for positive interactions that we've learned through TIPA Snow approach. And the letter E stands for education and that's for education for all levels of care partners. Uh, we love what we do. I, I think people can probably tell that we're passionate about what we do in taking the clinical that's driven our entire career set and now putting it into the love and passion of our business as well. I love that you guys have made this effort to work directly with the care partners, because I think that's one of the reasons that some care partners and loved ones are interested in ramping up the level of care for their individual, because they look at these medical and clinical professionals thinking, oh my goodness, they've gotten all this training that I don't have. Maybe my loved one is better off being cared for by this person. So I love that you're offering that education and training directly to the care partners. Emily, maybe if you can touch on what that offer looks like, because I know I know we mentioned the Instagram posts. I love all the care tips and dementia facts. You make it so educational and accessible. But are there other things that you're offering to further support care partners if anyone listening is interested? Yes, absolutely. And it all starts with an initial consultation. Lori mentioned earlier, if you've met one person with dementia, you've met one person with dementia. There are many, many different diagnoses that lead to dementia. Dementia is not a diagnosis itself. It's a, a collection of symptoms. And there are lots of different diagnoses that lead there. And each one's going to present slightly differently. And each person with that diagnosis is going to progress a little bit differently. So we want to make sure that that training that we provide is customized and individualized to what they need. This isn't generic A plus B equals C. This is where are you now? What are your pain points right now? And what can we do to support? So we start with a 30-minute consultation and people can register for that on our website. It is free. After that, usually what we like to do is meet them where they are. You know, whether they are comfortable inviting us into their home or they want to meet in a public space, either one is fine, but we want to meet one-on-one. -on -one. We want to meet the person who's living with dementia. We want to meet their care partners and see how they're functioning now. We would do an assessment to see what they already do well, where the areas of opportunity are, and what the best support is that we can provide. And then from there, we would design a program that's comfortable for them and for us of follow-up. So we might meet 
you know, on a weekly basis for a little bit, or if they just need a few little things, maybe once or twice, and then as needed, we can create a package that's going to work for them and provide that training. I mentioned we like to do it in person. We can also do things virtually via Zoom. It's not ideal. It's a little bit more challenging to see how things are working when we're over a virtual space like this, but it can be done. So I don't want people to be worried about that aspect. And then I know Lori mentioned the, you know, the small group training, the workshops that we can provide as well. I mentioned earlier that I'm a strong believer in Lori is too in learning by doing. And so that's a big piece of what we do. We're not going to just sit there and feed you a bunch of facts and figures and statistics. Those are great. They may be interesting. They're not going to help you when you're caring for your loved ones. So we want to actually get in there and help with the tasks that are challenging. So that's a big component of our training and really what we base it on is that individualized one-on-one -on -one customized training. Perfect. Thank you so much. And you mentioned that virtual and in-person were both options. Tell us again what, what area you're located in for anyone who might want to get in touch locally. Sure. We're in the Dallas, Texas area. So Lori's on the north side of the DFW Metroplex. I'm on the south side of the DFW Metroplex, but we're more than happy to drive anywhere in this area that, that helps needed. And I wanted to share, Emily mentioned you can go to our website to register for that free 30-minute consultation. And Courtney, you mentioned Instagram. So I did just want to share our website is www.empoweringcarepartners.com. And the same name, Empowering Care Partners, is our Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Feel free to follow us. Wonderful. Any closing thoughts before we wrap this up? It's been wonderful. Yeah, I mean, again, I just want to thank you for having us and being able to have those open conversations. I think that it's great. I think the more that safe spaces are provided for individuals who are living with dementia, Huntington's disease, the more that they have these safe spaces, the better off that it is for everyone because they feel more comfortable and confident through their disease process. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having us on your podcast and for bringing this information in a usable format to the people who need it. You're so welcome. And we want to thank you for having us. It has been my honor and pleasure. Thank you guys so much. Thank you. Thank you. Did you know that I'm offering mini coaching sessions completely free? Go to helpforthecaregiver.com to schedule one now. If you found value in this podcast, share it with your communities, spreading the power of these tools to more people. Find me on Instagram or Facebook at Courtney Cable Coaching for ongoing interaction, valuable content, and additional resources. For personalized support, visit my website to view my affordable coaching programs or to schedule a free mini coaching session or consultation call. Thank you for joining HD Reality and I can't wait for our next conversation.